smaller crowd today, and so I'm, I'm coming down to you so I can preach right to Jeff. Since I, you, I, you weren't there when I moved here, so there you go. Hello. So this morning, um, first before I start the sermon, uh, today Heidi is preaching in Bellingham, uh, Sudden Valley area of Bellingham, Washington. She's preaching at another church, which is pretty cool. So what I'd like to do is that everybody who has her phone number, and I know not everybody does, but everybody who has her phone, you guys know Heidi. She does not have her phone on stage. If I was, if this was me, this would be a horrible thing to do. But her phone is safely, and the notifications are off, and it's in her purse someplace, or in the car, or at another house, or maybe even at my house. I don't know. That's how Heidi is with her phone. But would you guys just text her that you're praying for her? And I'm going to take a moment to pray for her and for Sudden Valley uh, Christ the King Church, where she's preaching. Um, and then we'll dive into our stuff. Is that cool? Just be aware of what's going on with our church family someplace else. So, Father, uh, right now we just want to pray a blessing over Heidi as she preaches to Christ the King in Bellingham, or actually Sudden Valley. And I pray that your spirit would just fall upon that place, that people's minds and hearts would be open to receive what you've implanted in her heart uh, this morning for them. God, may there be a connection between our body here and their body there um, through this time that we would recognize that we are one family in Christ. We are the new family of Jesus together. Uh, so we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. So, yeah, you can obnoxiously text her. That's the first time I've ever given permission people to text during service. Isn't that funny? It's probably stagger it. Yeah, especially if she's got the alarm on. It would be... If she has her, her uh, notifications on, it wasn't me. Okay, this was all your idea. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart to text Heidi right now. It's okay. Uh, yeah, okay, we're getting the notification that her phone is silenced. <laughs> it would be just like me to do something silly like that, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, oh, boy. Okay, so today is Pentecost Sunday. Surprise. Uh, it's really interesting, and I mentioned this earlier this morning to our uh, prayer team, that for the last, I don't even know how many years, it's probably been more than two or three. It's probably been more like five or six. But Pentecost Sunday happens, and, uh, and I'm just, I'm in a sermon series, or I'm in, you know, whatever, and or somebody else is preaching, and we don't ever talk about Pentecost. And on Monday, Audrey goes, or the day before, or three days before, Audrey, and it's always Audrey that does this. Hey, Pentecost is coming up. Are you preaching about Pentecost? I'm like, it is? Well, I, I didn't realize it, and I, I didn't know. <laughs> and so uh, it was just really bizarre because we are a Pentecostal church uh, by our church family. So we're going to talk this morning about what Pentecost is and all about, but I want to read some scriptures first. And it's, it's kind of a long set of scriptures, but I wanted to start there to root us in the scripture, in the story, so that we can learn about what Pentecost is all about. So if you want to turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, uh, we're going to read a good chunk of Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to jump over to Galatians, which is the series that we're actually kind of trying to recontinue after our missions break. So we'll be jumping to Galatians 3 at the end of uh, this section from Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13, and then 17 through 21. Now to give you some context... Okay, this is where we're at in like the church calendar. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Easter happened, right? Jesus was crucified. He was buried for three days, and then he was resurrected to life. And then he spent 50 days preaching to the crowds, preaching to the disciples, explaining this whole resurrection life thing. All kinds of amazing things happened. Then he ascended, and during, after his ascension, or during his, just before he ascended, he said to them, go and wait and pray 
for the Holy Spirit to come, the promised, uh, the promised paraclete, the, the helper to come. And so that's what the disciples are doing now. They are, they are hidden in a room, an upper room, it says, and they are praying. And this is, uh, this is the story that takes place immediately following that. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And that's all the, the followers of Jesus. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rushing of violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared upon them, and a tongue rested upon each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this, at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one of them, uh, each one of them heard, each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fer Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and, all, and parts of Libya um, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. So now Peter is going to address the crowd, Peter the apostle. And uh, he addresses the crowd and he explains to them what's going on here. Um, and then he comes and he actually is going to quote an Old Testament prophet named Joel. And this is one of the smaller prophets. So you can go back and look and this is from Joel chapter 2. Um, but this is what he says. <coughs> he says, no, this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. That's verse 16. Now verse 17. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my, sl uh, my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's look quickly at Galatians chapter 3. Now verse 23 through 29, just three verses I want to read to you. This is from the Apostle Paul. Now before faith came... We were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law has been our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subjects to the disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to the promise. Jesus, I pray this morning that we would um, again come into contact with the power of your Holy Spirit. 
that we would see your spirit alive and active in our lives and that you would disrupt the patterns that we have fallen into that keep us distant and far from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pentecost, it's, uh, this is what our church is a part of, the Pentecostal family of believers across the world. And the Pentecostal church really traces its roots to the 1920s uh, with the, 18, or the late 1800s into the 1920s. There's like a 10, 20-year period there where this fiery revival happened, particularly here in the United States, particularly in the Los Angeles area, where people were being filled again with the Holy Spirit and having experiences very much like Acts chapter 2. People were being healed. Demons were being cast out. People were speaking in new tongues and new languages. There's story after story of people like speaking a language, and it took them a week. They couldn't speak anything else but this language that was coming out of them, and they couldn't figure out what it was. It took them a good week to figure out, oh, she's speaking Mandarin Chinese, and this person has never come into contact with Mandarin Chinese before, and they bring the Chinese people, and they're hearing this, this woman literally preaching the gospel, speaking about God's amazing deeds in Mandarin Chinese, which she's never heard before, and she becomes a missionary to China. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was going on in the 1920s, and it sparked uh, a revival across the nation and really across the globe where the Pentecostal church is now the fastest growing segment of the Christian church in the world. Even as the church is shrinking in many parts of the, of the globe, uh, in the global south, it's, it is exploding, and people are coming to faith all the time, and it's through this Pentecostal fire. Um, and that's, that's something that's it's a deep, and it's ingrained in the DNA of this church. We are a four-square church, and this is our history. We come out of that revival in the 20s. But the word Pentecost and Pentecostal itself really is a really kind of a very churchy-sounding word. I mean, it sounds like theological. It sounds uh, kind of like out of touch. You know, many of us have like different... Uh, I don't know, experiences with that word. For some of us, it really does bring up this idea of revival. It brings up the idea of power. It brings up the idea of an experience with God's presence and God's spirit that's unexplainable and undeniable. It, it brings up feelings of miracles or the hope of miracles. But for others, uh, it brings up some, you know, it just kind of rings of wacko, right? It just rings of weirdos. Uh, you, you think of uh, holy rollers. Maybe you're from my, my heritage, you know, the, the Assemblies of God, that's where I grew up in, and kind of the mark of an Assemblies of God person was big hair. You know, we just had massive hair in the 80s and 90s, and even today. Uh, it's like, you know, classic radio now, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. You know, it's just like, this is how it goes. We, we, we speak in tongues, people are falling down if somebody blows on you, and it's, you know, you turn on the television, you're flipping through channels at the hotel, and, you know, inevitably you come up against one of these Pentecostal revivals, and people are moaning and waving, and somebody goes, and then people fall down, and you're like, this is weird, right? This is many of our take on what Pentecostal means. For others, it rings of spiritual abuse, of emotional manipulation, and of taking advantage of people financially because these are all some of the shadow side of the Pentecostal movement even today where we've seen leaders take advantage of people's emotions, take advantage of, of a spiritual gift for their own benefit, and it hurts people over and over again. So this is kind of our modern take on Pentecost, but Pentecost and Pentecostalism comes from something much further than the 1920s. It roots itself in Acts chapter 2 and even further than that all the way back to the days of Moses in the Old Testament. Now, I wanted to share with you kind of a little bit just about the church calendar real quick, because this is a part of why I would always forget, like, it's Pentecost Sunday, because I wasn't living in the church calendar. And I wanted to show you this picture. It's a circle, and she's going to put it up there any second now. 
So this is a uh, this is a picture of a church calendar versus a you know a U.S. calendar. Where you look on your day planner and you've got squares and it goes from you know right left to right and you move through things and you know each month has an end. The church calendar is pretty different. It functions in seasons and it's a circle and it's never ending and it's all centered around this middle piece, the gospel, the Sabbath. It's it's God's good news that we no longer have to work for His love anymore. We can rest in Christ. It's all centered in that. And what it does is it's, uh, you can see kind of the line through the middle, two halves, the upper half and the lower half. The first half of the, the Christian calendar, uh, it begins with Advent and it moves its way through Easter. And it tells the whole story of Jesus from birth, life, death, and resurrection. That's what we just went through. It starts, it starts in November just before Christmas with Advent and we go through waiting. Then we have Christmas and Christmas tide. Then we enter uh, Lent which is a season of waiting before and preparation for Easter Sunday. And then you have the whole Holy Week thing there. And then after that, you spend several weeks talking about the implications of resurrection. And then we go into this thing starting today on Pentecost Sunday. The, the whole second half of the calendar is called ordinary time. <laughs> Isn't that kind of boring? So ordinary time, you know, we're Americans. We want it to be extraordinary time. We want it to be amazing time. But Really, our faith is just lived in the day-to-day of everyday life, right? It's in the going to work. It's in the changing of diapers. It's in the feeding of the family. I mean, it's all of the things that we do every day. We have to figure out how to live our faith out. And so the church calendar actually centering us in the gospel says, look, there's this whole part of the year where we have to figure out how to do that. But Pentecost starts it. Pentecost Sunday today begins ordinary time, and that's because it remembers the day the Holy Spirit came and empowered us to live the life that God has designed for us in the ordinary. Isn't that beautiful? So now you understand kind of how we're flowing. We're going to have some feasts in the fall maybe, and, but it moves in this big circle, and we just go over and over again, remembering the whole story of Christ and living it in the ordinary day to day. So what is Pentecost? What is this Pentecost Sunday? And so what does it mean for us? And I want to put it in a historical perspective. So let's talk about Pentecost for the Jews, because it says in the Acts chapter 2 that when the day of Pentecost came, it wasn't a day the Christians were already just celebrating as a Christian holiday. It was a Jewish holiday. It was a Jewish holiday that uh, remembered back all the way to the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, actually, sorry, Exodus chapter 34, what, what has happened has been 50 days. That's what Pentecost means, 50 days. 50 days from Passover, the day that people put the blood over their doorposts and the, the angel of death passed over and all the Jews were saved and then God rescued them and carried them out, out of slavery in Egypt. And then 50 days later, they find themselves in the desert at Mount Sinai and God comes and he brings and he gives them the law. As familiar with this story, the, the law, the Old Testament law that guided and directed the relationship between God and people. Pentecost originally celebrated the 50th day after Passover on which God brought the law. See, their behavior as former slaves didn't really set them apart from the rest of the world very much. And it regularly was harming their relationship with God. You have to think of it more like the equivalent of a spouse cheating on his or you know, his wife or her husband. It's very much what the people of God were doing. By turning to other gods and to other things, they were com- constantly dishonoring their relationship with God. So God said, no, look, this is how our relationship needs to look. It's not just that you're to be set apart or you're supposed to act perfectly, but I want you to be able to honor yourselves as human beings 
and I want you to be able to honor other human beings as human beings, and I want you to be able to honor me as God. So this is the pathway. We call it the law, but the Jews in the Old Testament actually called it the word, the 10 words of God that were spoken over the people. And that's what we celebrate on, uh, the Jews actually still today celebrate the day of Pentecost is the day that God gave them the 10 words which mediated their relationship. It's celebrated by feasts now. In the Old Testament, it was celebrated with some prescribed sacrifices, and then people would bring what was called free will offerings to God. Offerings of love, like, God, we just love you so much, we just wanted to give you these things. And we know you don't need anything, but out of the bigness of our hearts, out of all that you've done in us, we, we have to do something, and so we give you these free will offerings to be shared with you. But what happened following that day, in which they still celebrate, which is still a really good thing, they took the words of God and they did turn it into the law. It became the law. And what happened was the law became a middleman between God and human beings. I've been doing some reading recently on how relationships work, and I came across this idea of a relationship triangle. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but I was like, I was reading it and I was looking at what, what's going on in these stories. I go, oh my gosh, we have a relationship triangle. See, a triangle, a triangulated relationship is a relationship between two people or things uh, that winds up having a third, okay? It becomes a triangle. I'll show you a picture of it. There's a triangle, any relationship between three people or a thing that should only have two. And here's a picture of one. And you're gonna come up right here. So this is what it looked like for them. So there was supposed to be a relationship between humans and Yahweh, right? Humans and God. And this piece of bacon got in the way. It really didn't look like bacon on my computer when I made it, but it looks like bacon right now, doesn't it? <laughs> this piece of bacon got in the way, and, and that's just representing that the relationship between God and humans wasn't working out so well. There was some anxiety, there was stress, there was dishonor, there was wounds, there was abuse going on, all kinds of bad things happening between Yahweh and humans. And so God says, no, we need to change how this works. I'm going to tell you how we need to relate. And he gives them the word. He gives them the ten words from God. But humans take that, and we say, no, this is a law. And what happens is we use this third party, that's interesting, to stabilize that relationship. You guys following me? It's kind of a big, big thought. We use a third to stabilize it, like a tricycle. It makes us more stable. We can do this in any of our relationships. It can be a husband and a wife, and then we bring in another person to the side to help us uh, balance, to help us mediate, to help us, it, and that's really what it is. It's media or medium that comes in and becomes the middleman between the, f the two that should be relating. Now, you can have healthy relationships that triangle, right? A dad, a daughter, and a mom can be healthy between the three of them if there's just the three of them. But it's when that third person is being used to mediate the relationship between two people that ought to be relating. I hope that makes sense to you. I know this is a complex idea, so let me give you a little more behind that. So this is like two, two friends who are in a conflict, okay? You and a friend, you have a disagreement, let's say, over politics. And a third person is drawn in to help the two of you work it out. That's a triangulated relationships. You might be triangulating in your relationships if you find yourself talking to someone about how difficult your boss is or how your pastor doesn't do it quite right or how your child's teacher isn't helping enough. If you're not talking to the teacher, the boss, or the pastor about that, you're talking to a third person, you've just created a relationship triangle to try to make that one-to-one -one relationship easier. 
if you're hearing somebody gossip, if somebody comes to you and they're gossiping or talking about a person who is not present, you're in a triangle. And in fact, I would tell you this, is that gossip is always, always a form of triangling, um, as are most middle school relationships. <laughs> yeah. There's only one middle schooler here. It's okay. <laughs> All right, so if you're having an affair, if you're having an affair, you have now have a dry relationship triangle, you and your spouse and the person you're having an affair with. Uh, if you find yourself thinking more about a child in your family or anyone else other than your own marriage or your own self, you are triangling. People who struggle with direct communication are prone to triangling. And if you feel powerless in a relationship, you are prone to draw somebody else to be on your side within that triangle. This is what the law became for the people. They were meant to have a direct relationship between God, God, the people, people, God, back and forth. This is a direct relationship. And in comes the law to mediate that thing. And the people are like, well, we can't get it right. So we're just going to keep working hard and doing what the law says so that we can get it right for God. And God is feeling further and further distant from the people. Galatians teaches us that the law, this is what we read this morning, the law was actually meant to just be a guardian for the people, to guard their hearts, to guard their, their character, and yet it becomes a slave owner, and it enslaves the people. The law became an idol for the people, and they became slave to it. See, an idol is anything that we need to be okay that is not God, right? An idol is anything that we need to be okay in life, to be okay with God, it's if, if I have to relate to God, an idol is anything that I need to feel okay with God, other than God. An idol is what we live for when we're not living for Jesus. And in order for our relationship with God to be okay, for these people, they had to follow the law perfectly. I hope that makes sense, because it's this big concept I'm seeing, holy cow, what's going on here? And I'm going to take this even further in a moment. So what happens when people turned that law into an idol? They became slave to it. They fell into a try harder or give up pattern. You ever had this happen in your life? You're like, you're going along and you're like, oh, I'm going to be this sort of person. I'm going to be a person who exercises and I want to be healthy. So we, we fall into a try harder pattern where we work hard and we go to the gym every day and we run all the time and we eat all perfectly. And then something happens, life happens, and we miss a day. And some people fall into a second pattern, which is a give up entirely. So we just give up and we move away. And that's what happened with the people of God. They lived in this cycle. So if you read the book of Judges, you see the cycle. They will love, serve, and follow God, and they work hard to make sure that the worship was good. They may work hard, work hard to make sure people were following the law and the commandments, and they were maintaining a relationship with God. And then eventually they go, oh, this is too hard. And they give up, and they take up other gods. They start following other, other people's gods. They start making sacrifices to other gods, and they turn their heart away from God, and they become distant from God again. They give up. And this is where the book of Judges really shines, because God keeps sending people into the system to say, no, you can come back. No, you don't have to work hard. No, come back and follow me. I love you. And keeps pursuing people over and over again. So they end up in a cycle of try hard, give up, try hard, give up, try hard, give up. It also led to a consolidation of power. It was a Jews-only party. The laws made allowances for other people to come in and to be a part of things, but it was very much the Jews kept people on the outer courts. If you were not a Jew, you were kept out. Uh, it was mostly a men's club. Only men could lead. Only men could lead worship. Only men could enter the Holy of Holies and come into God's presence. It was almost entirely, with the, and there's exceptions that prove the rule, a men's club. 
And then in the end, they ended up using the law as a source of power to just control others. So you see it in the kings like David making mistakes, using his power to control others and to get what he wants. You see the Pharisees using it in the times of Jesus to control the people and to consolidate power and to hold it. Religious leaders at various times using and abusing the law to maintain power. The law became a medium that was mediating the relationship between people and God. And as long as that triangle remained, all that would happen would just be the same, more of the same. Give up, try harder. Give up, try harder. Only certain people in power, using the power of the law to control people. What's true of, of that is true of our relationships as well. Until somebody with some power in the triangle disrupts the triangle itself, things will just be more of the same, more of the same. That's what we always get, more of the same. So that's the, that's the historical Jewish perspective. And I did put a negative, negative spin on this because it was negative and it didn't turn out well. If you look at by the time of Jesus, it wasn't looking good. But from the Pentecost Christian perspective, it's a little bit like the Monty Python uh, flying circus sketches. If you guys, any of you watch those in the, from the 70s or 80s, they would, they would do a sketch, they'd do a comedy sketch, and then all of a sudden somebody would walk on screen and go, and now for something completely different, and everything would change. You know, they were keying in on our, our anxiety over change, and it'd be like, oh, we're just going to acknowledge it. And now for something completely different. And that's what Pentecost was for the Christian church. They'd been living in this triangulated pattern for centuries. God the people, and the law. Jesus comes, and he begins to disrupt that. What does Jesus do? The, 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 the Gospels tell us that Jesus fulfilled the law, and then when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the requirements of the law sacrifices so that it was one life for all. And Jesus comes in, and he absolutely wipes out the law's aspect of the triangle. Now they're in, here's a really cool thing. Get this. I mean, we show that there's another triangle, I think, coming up. Uh, right there. So Jesus comes in, the law is wiped out, he fulfills the law, and look what happens now. We have humans relating to Yahweh, and the third portion of this is Jesus. But here's the cool thing, Jesus is the son of God. So now we've got a triangle where humans are relating to who? Just God. Isn't that cool? The triangle is disrupted because the power of the law has been broken, and we have been set free. We have been set free. The Christians... Pentecost, we celebrate and remember that 50 days, just like Pentecost was 50 days from Passover to Pentecost, 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus to Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus disrupts the triangle, becomes, takes the place of the law. Then the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon the people and fills them. Now, in the triangle, you have God, Jesus, God's Son, humans filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. We now no longer are triangulated by God. We are now no longer having to work to keep our relationship with God in check. We are invited into the center in our being to be a part of the life of God. That's Trinitarian theology. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and us invited into the middle of it. God living in us. The triangle is disrupted, and we can now relate in a healthy way with God. It fundamentally changed how we relate to God. Get this. God is no longer distant, right? The piece of bacon is no longer there. He's no longer God out there, but God is as close as your breath all of a sudden. 
God is no longer separated from us by a chasm of holiness, the law that we can never fulfill, the things we can never measure up to. That's been taken away, and through Jesus, we can relate directly. God lives within us. God is not sitting out there expecting us to get things right. Instead, he comes into us and empowers us to do things differently, empowers us to live life differently, to give us the ability to fall forward. God is not requiring sacrifices for our sins, but he gives himself over and over and over and over again so that relationship between him and us can be direct at all times and at all places. Complete access to God is what we were given on Pentecost Sunday, and that's why Pentecost Sunday is such a big deal for Christians. It also happens to be the day that is the birth of the church. Because the Holy Spirit didn't just fill one individual, which is what you see when you read the Old Testament. It says the Spirit of God came upon Saul, like, and he became king. And then Saul does exactly what everybody else does, right? He tries hard, and then he ends up giving up. He, he, he loses his integrity. He falls away from God, and so God puts the Spirit on David. And David becomes a great king, and he serves really great for a long time, but he still falls, and he still fails, and he still takes power from horses. He still takes many wives. He still builds wealth on the backs of the poor. God's spirit comes off of him. It falls on various prophets and priests and kings throughout the centuries, one person at a time to lead. But this is so different. In this room was probably about 170 people. It's a big room. And the Holy Spirit comes, and it, what it said was that there was a flame came from the heavens, and it separated, and it landed on each of them in the room. Men and women, old men like Barnabas, young men like John, children, anybody who had followed Jesus, who was gathered in that room to pray, in that moment, the Holy Spirit filled each of them. And the Holy Spirit continues to do this because if you watch through Acts, every follower of Christ becomes filled with the Holy Spirit on all flesh. That's what Joel said, right? The Spirit would come on all flesh. Paul, the, the, it, it talks about all the different nationalities, Cretans and Jews and Arabs, and we've got black people and white people and brown people and, uh, you know, just every color, every gender, every age, the Spirit came on each of them. So it was no longer one person that could relate to God. It was all of us. And that is the birth of the church. Because now we relate to one another, and the Holy Spirit living in us is the center of our relationships with each other. The wind blew, the, the fire fell on every person in that room, and the church was born. Let's all just say happy birthday, church. Happy birthday, church. Yeah, this is your birthday. This is it. The Spirit fills every Christian relationship. The Spirit levels every relationship. It's now no longer him over her or her over him or them better than them. We are all one in Christ, as Galatians says. There is no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, no slave, no free. There is no male, no female. We are all one in Christ. And it is amazing how the church has managed to get that wrong over and over again, in my opinion. And we still manage to blow it. The Holy Spirit is still empowering the followers of Jesus to this day. They were empowered in that moment to share the good news of this massive shift in our relationship with God. The bacon is gone, <laughs> okay? 
This is the good news that we get to share. We can directly relate to God. God loves us enough to take care of the problem for us. What we could not do ourselves, God did for us. And now we can all relate directly to God. And he does it in the language that we speak, whether it's our cultural language, whether it's our, our na- national language, whatever, our gender language, whatever it is, the language that we're using, God is empowering his people to speak that language. He empowers us to hear from him. We're not mediated by listening to the law as his word. We're not mediated by somebody else having to tell us what God is saying, but we can each hear directly from God. We can see dreams and visions. And I'll let you choose which one of those things you see based on that passage. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. You can choose which category you want to fall in, old or young, but you can have that. You can see dreams and visions. And you can carry the kingdom of God and bring it near to people through signs and wonders, through healing, through, through acts of kindness and love and generosity that, that just aren't possible without the power of the Holy Spirit in you. To do things, to speak, and to treat others with love as the Spirit empowers and leads you. That's Pentecost. That's the result. That's what changed. Everything changed. But, like the Jews in the desert, they left slavery and they get out in the desert where God is longing to provide for them, longing to care for them, but they are nervous. We don't like it out here. Why did you lead us to the desert just to die? Why, why are we out here? All we have is this, this bread that's falling from heaven. I'm sick of bread that God's providing. I want something else. And we get upset and we want to return. We, it was better for us to be in the, the pots of meat in Egypt, right? The huge vats of beef that they were cooking for us was way better than what we're getting out here. Why are we out here? And that's why Paul in Galatians, the centerpiece of Galatians, Galatians from, from Galatians chapter 4, <laughs> my brain is fogging on me. He says this, do not return again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the ways of the law. Don't go back to your slave masters. Don't go back to your idols. Stay here. Stay free. Live out of this relationship with God that has been transformed and changed for you. The Holy Spirit has been given to you to accomplish just that. You can walk in the fullness of a relationship with God. Don't go back for more of the same. Don't go back to try harder and give up. We don't have to go back to working for Jesus. We don't have to go back to to acting in a religious way so that people think well of us, so that God maybe would think well of us. We can't turn Jesus into a new idol using religious behavior to feel okay inside of ourselves about our relationship with God. We can't go back to relationship with God that tempts to triangle with him. Well, we'll put anything else, right? It's us and God, and we're going to go with television. Us and God, oh, I'm going to put this drug addiction. Oh, us and God, I'm going to put this this set of relationships I have. Oh, me and God, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get all the things done. I'm going to check all the boxes. I'm going to spin my life up, and I'm just going to work so hard that I don't have to deal with this trust relationship that God has called me to. We can't go back to triangling with God. But this is what the people of God do over and over again because we're humans. It is the nature of the human relationship that when things get unstable between two people, they look for a third to stabilize it. 
We can't go back to that sort of relationship, but many of us are living in that place right now. I know that I consistently find things where I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, God, I'm, you know, I'm just supposed to be trusting in you, but I'm over here trying to make it happen. Oh, God, I'm just supposed to be loving you, but I've got all these other things that I love so much. God, I'm just supposed to be serving you, but yet what I'm doing is serving me because I want other people to think highly of me. I triangle with God all the time, and so do you, and so do I. And so it's the constant journey with the Holy Spirit, who is not just our comforter, but also our conscience, to bring to mind the places where we are inserting other things into our relationship with God. So my closing question for you in this sermon that I really hope made sense is this. What do you think you need to be okay with God that isn't Jesus? What is it that your heart says to you, I need this to be okay? What is that third thing in your relationship with God? Let's take a moment to just let the Holy Spirit speak to you, speak to me, and then we're going to take and just turn that over to Jesus and, and seek to live in grace with the Father. Let's take a minute of silence. It's very easy to allow um, the enemy, Satan, or sin to come and speak in this moment, to show you a very long list of ways in which your relationship with God isn't stacking up, right? All the ways you fail, all the ways that you're broken, all the ways that, all these things that you do that you think this gets in my the way of my relationship with God. I want you to hear in this moment God loves you. Despite the long list, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, one thing from that list, that the Holy Spirit wants to empower you to live differently in so that you can relate to God in a healthy way. Not working, not earning, not striving, but walking in grace and in rest. Because that is the core of the church calendar the gospel, the good news that you don't have to work for it anymore and that you can rest in Christ. Good news. And good news, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you in this moment. So Jesus, for each of us, God, who are in this moment overwhelmed by the list that came into our minds just then, 
God, I pray a spirit of grace over each one of us, that your Holy Spirit resting upon each of us as a flame would burn in our hearts grace, and that you would invite us, God, just to take one step, to move one way, to follow you just a little little closer, to listen to you just a little more, to stop working just a little harder, to rest in you. Jesus, disrupt the triangles that we are creating with you and empower us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a pretty different sermon for Pentecost because often we come with very fiery, very passionate sermons where we pray over you to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can speak in tongues, so that you can do miracles, and so you can do all these amazing things that the apostle did. And many of us feel like, oh my gosh, I can never measure up to these apostles. Did you see this? This kid fell out of a window, and so Peter goes downstairs, and he prays for him, and he comes back to life. Did you see like G- Peter and John go into the temple, and the guy's like, hey, give me some money. Like, well, we don't have any money, but what I have I give to you. You know, stand up and walk, and they, it's just amazing thing after amazing thing after amazing thing, and we could feel like wimpy Christians. We do not have to feel like wimpy Christians because these were ordinary men empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you too are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we pray in this moment that you would fall on this church, and that God, the things that you have called us to do, that we would be empowered to do it, whether it be speaking to our neighbor whether it be praying for the sick, whether it be speaking in other tongues or other languages, whether, God, it's a cultural language or a national language or just the language of our spouse so they can understand us, God, I pray that you would empower us to do that and that we would see your miracles happen daily. Not Maybe they don't look like these ones in the, old, the New Testament, God. Open our eyes to see what it is you're empowering us to do. And God, this church is yours. Guide it and lead it and direct it as you choose in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's the end of my sermon. I know it's kind of an odd sermon, wasn't it? So I was going to go in the grace of the Lord to walk in the newness and the power of his spirit in your life this day, this week, this month, and to see Jesus doing new things in you and in the relationships in which you have triangles. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Jesus loves you and so do Heidi and I. And we'll see you next week back here.